more commonly, we oh, we give you a whole lot of stories of, of, of the perils of falconry in Zimbabwe, but um, I've had a run-in with a snake. Actually, run, snakes are quite a, quite a hazard for us. I mean, first of all, they throw a scent. I mean, people might not appreciate it, but snakes throw quite a good scent, a scent strong enough for a pointer to point on. So you think, oh, well, I've got this game bird in this piece of cover, and you go and kick it, and it's not a game bird that comes out, but a, but a very angry cobra. <laughs> and, and it does get awkward. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Welcome back for another episode of the Falconry Told Podcast. And we are now about a quarter of the way through this series that is brought to you all by the Cape Falconry Club. Hope you've been enjoying listening to their stories so far. And like I said, it's been an honor and a privilege to be able to help bring these stories out to the rest of the falconry community. If you also haven't checked them out yet, I highly recommend heading to falconryheritage.org and doing some homework into the Falconry Heritage Trust. They are on a worthy mission of preserving falconry for future generations around the world. And so if you haven't checked into them yet or heard much about them or their cause, like I said, head to falconryheritage.org. It's definitely worth checking out and giving them your support as well. And I also want to give a shout out, as usual, to one of our newest sponsors of the podcast, being Bobby Yaga Crafts from Poland. You've heard me brag about his stuff several times now, but I can't say enough just how happy I am with his uh, products and craftsmanship. If you haven't had a chance yet to check out some of his stuff on Instagram, head to at Baba Yaga Goshawk on Instagram. And you can also find the other contact information for him on our website as well at falconrytold.com. If you haven't got any of his really awesome handmade equipment yet, it's well worth your time and money to check it out. You definitely won't regret it. And I know I'm going to keep using his products well into the future. And I'm happy that um, I made that first initial purchase of a pair of his anklets, especially the ones with the Marshall Easy Twist sewn into the to the side. So anyway, definitely check his stuff out. You won't regret it. And this episode might be, if I recall, I think it actually is another first for the podcast and another cool perspective to bring you all. This, I think, is our first father and daughter tandem podcast that we've done. And Neil and Aaron come from Zimbabwe, so they also have some different perspectives and information about how falconry works from there as well. And some of the different interesting things that they have to kind of contend with and as you heard in the intro kind of look out for whenever they're practicing falconry where they're at so i hope you enjoy this episode with neil and aaron deacon and hope you enjoy this uh, different perspective and another first for the podcast so that being said here we go And luckily today was, well, at least has so far anyway, been a lot better. It's not torrentially raining and, you know, we've actually gotten to see some flights today. So, yeah. I mean, what did you think about earlier? Well, first of all, it was very kind of you to, to interview me. <laughs> gives us a chance to give our perspective from Zimbabwe out, hopefully, and, and let people know what we do. Um, it is very different here in Cape Town. Mm. Uh, the weather is surprisingly different um pretty challenging uh, with the high winds and the rain and the, 
soggy soils and yeah, <laughs> but it was it was a good morning. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And of course Erin, who you'll speak to a little later, it's her first opportunity to really see long wings flying in this type of terrain. Bear in mind where we come from, it's relatively flat. Um, we don't have these large mountains and um, she's mostly just been exposed to short wings. It's always cool for me to get to see long wing flights too, because we don't, as kind of, we were talking some last night and everything, we don't really have a lot of that where I'm from either. It's mostly just in the Midwest, it's, you know, woods and, and, um, you know, lots of cornfields and, you know, stuff like that. So, you know, it's kind of always nice to be able to see a lot of long wing flights and especially, you know, on, on things that we don't really have either, you know, cause we don't have your, um, a lot of the, well, obviously a lot of the prey base as far as feather goes, it's completely different here, you know, than, than what it is in the States. So Absolutely, it's very different for us. This is, I would guess this is much closer to traditional European hawking or Scottish hawking as you can get in Africa. You know, you've got this very European landscape with, with um, look, you've got different types of, of vegetation. However, overall, it's got the same feel about it. Whereas um, where we, we, we hunt, it's large, very tall grasses, very dry at this time of the year. Um, Obviously, the temperatures are much higher than here, so <laughs> it is very different for me. Even even for me, I've seen falconry in different places, but this today was is the first time I've really seen, I guess, what what, what hunting um, grouse or grouse on a Scottish moorland must be like. And yeah, it's something I haven't gotten a chance to see yet either. It's yeah, on the bucket list. Hundred percent. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't have that as a? Yeah, who wouldn't like to see that? I mean, that is really the sort of archetypal falconry that we all read about when we start off as as young falconers. Sure. Yeah, and um, you know, it's like I, I there's so many of these things that that are on the bucket list that I really want to see and do, and you know, it's it's just kind of funny because now. I, I feel like I know enough people to where if I really wanted to, you know, I could probably make seeing these different things happen and stuff. But as you know very well, um, you know, time, money, energy. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yes. Well, I mean, as I said before, you're welcome to come and see how we do it in Zimbabwe. Um, you know, historically, Zimbabwe, we, we well, Zimbabweans uh, were involved in, in, in generating the, the legislation that, that is now used in quite a few countries, but specifically South Africa. So all the falconry um, rules and, and um, yes, rules and, and, and obligations under falconry um, were, were generated from, 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 from Rhodesian falconers, now Zimbabwe, of course, and um, it's been adapted. Slightly different in that we... Do not allow any exotic raptors, so it's only um, indigenous raptors allowed to be flown in Zimbabwe, and um, which is sometimes sad because it would be nice to see how a hybrid or a or a European goss flies at our particular under our situation and at our types of quarry, but you know there are also big advantages in in not having exotic raptors, um, so we rely predominantly on birds borrowed from the wild, um, whether that's through rehab or actively going to 
to to an IRE and taking a bird. Um, yeah, so we're very fortunate. And and this morning, as we were driving along, we were discussing how much a peregrine costs in in the United States or in South Africa. Um, in Zimbabwe, we, we 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 take a peregrine, provided you are adequately qualified in terms of where you are as a falconer. You can you can take a a, a wild peregrine from an IRE, which I think is an enormous privilege, and um, it's something that I certainly value a great deal. Yeah, and and as you know, once something isn't there anymore, or once uh, privilege is is taken away, or whatever the case may be, it's very um, it's very difficult to get it back, and it's almost impossible at times. The the hoops you have to jump through, and and everything else. I mean, it's kind of like you know in the U.S. with with our peregrine take, and you know, and and um, you know, kind of we're still waiting to see when we'll officially get to take them more regularly, you know, or, um, or borrow, I guess, or however, whatever terminology you would like to use. I, th I think, while we're talking about borrowing, I think the term borrowing it from the wild is really accurate rather than wild take, because the principle is that you do borrow them from the wild on the assumption that they will go back one day. Um, it's, it's really important because it, it allows falconers to engage in conservation of a resource that they use. And I think it's an absolutely vital thing that we have access to wild wild birds to utilize. Um, as soon as you divorce collecting birds from the wild, then conservation of, of those birds becomes a lot less in, in, in your focus. And I, I think it's an absolutely crucial, crucial factor that we do continue to be able to have access to those wild birds. Even if it is just to 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 promote conservation of wild raptors by by falconers, and and it's kind of ironic, as you know, when I gave that presentation on on falconry in southern Africa, that a lot of the projects we have done as as Zimbabwean falconers have been on on falcons and raptors that are not used for falconry. So it is kind of ironic, although it did originally start off, you know, tracking peregrine falcons through DDT, um, you know. We have a particularly nasty little fly called a, a tsetse fly, which tends to suck blood and cause sleeping sickness and, and a miserable little fly at that, and it hurts like hell, and you can beat them, and they do not die. Bear in mind that they are fully capable of, of taking a swat from a buffalo tail and also penetrating its skin, so very uncomfortable. Anyway, but I digress. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a particular, it's a love-hate relationship, because tsetse flies have effectively conserved our very wild areas in Zimbabwe. As soon as the tsetse flies are gone, then you get domestic stock coming in, which obviously domestic stock takes precedence over wild stocks in Africa. They still do. So the tsetse, the way they decided to eliminate them was just broadcast spray DDT all over all over the countryside. We used to put about seventeen hundred tons on a year. Um, <laughs> no, sorry, it was more than seventeen thousand tons. Sorry, seventeen thousand tons per annum at its peak. It did whole sections of Zimbabwe and that resulted in a massive obviously a, a massive uh, impact on, on, on peregrine falcons. So you you know we've got major eggshell thinning and not restricted to peregrines obviously it was was also African goshawks and black sparrowhawks to some extent. And um, yeah, and that's where we as falconers started off. I think my first proper field trip and, and into the field monitoring birds was actually on DDT in 
a place in a grotty little place in Zimbabwe. <laughs> and it was, um, yeah. And I guess that was my start on this journey of conservation. So yeah. as you've probably established, conservation has really become my focus rather than falconry as such. Although I've got a chance to have a do-over, you know, having my daughter now wanting to fly birds and flying a bird herself. So I was actually quite almost dormant. I was very dormant for a long time. I've still got a hawk eagle, which is 23 years old. And um, she obviously, there's no, she, she was taken as an able chick, you know, from the Canaan able. She's a, a true eagle, so she was taken as the able chick um, in 2000. And I, was, I wasn't, I didn't take her myself. Um, there was two young falconers who, who wanted to fly a hawk eagle and they took this bird and and you're probably aware of the the land redistribution that happened in Zimbabwe. So the state took a, a whole lot of land from people and it was redistributed to underprivileged and indigenous peoples. It created chaos. But in terms of this hawk eagle, all of a sudden we had people that were were removed off their farm and they had this hawk eagle and they couldn't keep it in a flat in Harare. So I ended up with me and 23 years later, still got Jessica the Hawk Eagle. <laughs> She's kind of part of the furniture. She outlives my marriage and my children at this stage. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's uh, a lot of people don't realize, you know, one of the, I don't know about you, but one of the more common questions that I get is, well, you know, how long is that bird going to live? You know, and, uh, and I'm like, well, that, I mean, my answer is usually, well, that depends. I mean, <laughs> if it's, you know, I mean, there's always the, the falconry hazards and, you know, most birds usually, I mean, my answer is every bird is going to eventually die, you know, because it's a living thing, you know, and we all die. It's just a part of life. But, um, but I mean, if you're, if it's not being flown very regularly, then it's has a higher chance of, of living longer. But I mean, if you're really flying birds pretty consistently, well, then, you know, it's, 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 it's impossible to say, you know, but, um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm not really f that familiar with a lot of, of the different, I mean, a lot of the history lessons and things are, are pretty spotty <laughs> from, from, uh, you know, back in the day, you know, it's been a minute, you know, I'll, I'll be, I'll be 40 next month and it's been a while since I've been in school. And, uh, and even then we didn't really learn a whole lot about history in this country. So, you know, I'm, I'm really not that familiar with a lot of those, those things. Well, it's complicated, and obviously there's there's lots of lots of resources on the internet, and this is not mm -hmm. really about African politics; it's about sure, falconry. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, yeah. But it does play into it. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. So that's how I ended up with Jessica <laughs> for my sins. <laughs> and then she's an a very ordinary bird of it. Yeah, I mean they they're notoriously aggressive birds. They share airspace with the big eagles, Marshall eagles, uh, Vero's eagle, and and crowned eagles. And they're kind of like the little man syndrome of the eagle world. They think they're much bigger than they actually are <laughs> and often <laughs> push their luck. Yeah. 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 There's uh, there's plenty of birds that are like that, you know, both, I guess, well, much to the, the chagrin of many, I guess. But, uh... Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> but uh, well, I mean, so uh, you said, you know, the Conservation Avenue was kind of your first link into 
getting into falconry. But I mean, was there a particular moment or a particular instance where you realized that this was something that you wanted to do? Oh, no, I can I can remember it absolutely clearly. It wasn't about conservation. I, 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 as a schoolboy of 14 years old, I was in a, at a boarding school in, in kind of rural Zimbabwe, um, a place called Izigadini, which is a little way out of Bulawayo. And we had this new teacher sign up to the school. And I remember walking past his garden and I saw this peregrine falcon on a block and instantly mesmerized. And I will never forget that moment. And having no idea how it would ultimately affect my life. Because since that day, I've been chasing raptors in one form or another. And Ron Hartley, who the bird belonged to, is obviously, he's a very famous falconer. Um, he's been honored by the Peregrine Fund. He's very, very, very well known and, and recognized as, as certainly in our, in our circles as one of the fathers of conservation in terms of falconry. I um, mean, he, he was in, an incredible, incredibly prolific writer. I mean, he has written screeds and screeds of, of papers on, on all sorts of aspects of, of, of raptor biology. And um, so I had him as my mentor, and he was absolutely phenomenal. And when I finished at Falcon College, I carried on to university, and he was very keen on that because all of a sudden he had now had had somebody who he could utilize to do to write up stuff as well as as the you know really legitimize falconry uh, falconer based research because obviously that's that's been an issue and something that I also raised is we need falconers who are scientists because we're still unfortunately science is like that you you get kind of your the gauge you're gauged by your, your 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 credibility is gauged by what you how you qualified and it is something that is sad because you know falconers do put a lot of really good observations and the biggest snag is obviously getting them to write those observations down so that they now become they go into the public domain and the observations are recorded into the future um and then but trying to get a falconer and a scientist is quite a rare a rare beast as you can well imagine <laughs> they're very few and um it's obviously something we're trying to push for now is is get falconers into science so that they can convey convey what we see as falconers every day you know very few of us very few people get to spend as much time in the wild looking at birds as falconers i mean they just do and their the volume and quality of their observation is they're very important incredibly important um Bear in mind, it was falconers who, who who figured out that it was there was something wrong with peregrines when they when the eggs started to, well, first of all they weren't producing any young, and then they discovered the eggs were were, were collapsing. So that that was the peregrine. And what, what what I've been obviously one of the things I'm trying to push for is to get local falconers in Africa as we start to see the f impacts of climate change and development and all the things that that are associated with people. Um start to really take hold and, and, and what, what were once common birds are starting to get rarer and rarer. Um, and look, we've seen gross changes in species diversity, not always for the worse. I understand that without that giant artificial forest called Joburg, there wouldn't be a Vamba sparrowhawks there, there wouldn't be black sparrowhawks. So it's not all bad. 
But on the other hand, there is quite a lot of concern going in, going forward. I mean, we've got power lines, we've got development, urban sprawl, things happening which, which are going to affect how certainly our raptors and their prey species um, are affected. And that's, you know, we've got to try and record this stuff. Well, and what do you think... Um... I mean, what do you think is the best way to really, aside from just self-motivation and people who become falconers wanting to make, you know, kind of a difference with all those things? I mean, how do you think people are going to be more incentivized, you know, to, you know, kind of uh, fill that niche? Because, I mean, it is a lot of work and it's a lot of uh, it's a big ask of people. So, I mean... What do you think is going to be the best way to, to get more people to kind of adopt those responsibilities then? I very much think it's, it's how we, we deal with, with apprentices and how, how we nurture our apprentices. We always focus on, you know, building skills, how to tie a falconer's knot, how to impotail. tail. But conservation should be built into falconers at a young age. It is part of what we do. You know, if we don't conserve our birds our, our hawks or our quarry species you know we, we kind of forget that quarry is just important as, as raptors as the raptors we hunt the quarry species are vital and for those quarry species to exist they need their habitats because frequently the very best game birds the ones that we like to to hunt are the ones that have the most specific requirements in terms of habitat so to answer your question i believe that it's it, it's We've got to get people to appreciate that the privilege of using a wild bird. You see, this is where the wild story mm -hmm. comes in. It's mm -hmm. the privilege of being able to use a wild bird makes you want to give back. That's always been my motivation is I've got to use these birds freely whenever I wanted, whatever I wanted. And I've got to give back. You know, it, it's my responsibility to give back so that my, my daughter or my son may enjoy what I've, I've had the privilege to use. And it's an assumption. You, you can't assume what you've got is going to be available in the, to the next generation. It is changing that fast. I mean, even in Aaron's relatively short falconry career, we've seen fences, we've seen buildings, we've seen people settle what I used to hunt when I was 16. And so people are, are really moving across this landscape very quickly. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, we're not, I don't think we're going to change that, not as falconers, but we can certainly say, well, let's start to think how we can save or preserve certain key habitats and maybe see whether we can, we can preserve some of the, some of the, what we, what we believe is one of the greatest, yeah, the greatest things of, of falconry is actually getting out every day and hunting every day and observing nature in action. Yeah, and it's an, unfortunately a worldwide um, epidemic <laughs> of, yeah. of just, you know, just losing. I mean, even since, you know, I, my first, well, even since before my first season. And, and uh, so, I mean, I, I started kind of shadowing and learning about all this stuff in around 2014. So, I mean, it's not like I have a huge time in this either per se, but like, even in, in the relative amount of time that, you know, I've gotten into the sport and I mean, we've lost so many, so many spots that were good, you know, really, really good spots that provided a lot of really good memories, <laughs> you know, yeah. and a lot of um, really good habitat for, you know, the, the prey base that, 
you know, like being squirrels, you know, rabbits and, and everything else. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't, <laughs> I've had this conversation so many times with people that I, I don't, I don't know if anybody's got like a really clear way of, of kind of stopping that from inevitably continuing on, you know, it's, we, there's, there's only so much we can do, unfortunately, but I do agree with you in that if we don't foster up and coming generations who are eventually going to kind of take over the mantle of, you know, not just our spectrum, but even the political spectrum and what happens with certain things and, and all that kind of stuff, then yeah, it's not, it's not going to be a battle that we have any chance of, of winning. Yeah. And it's just an observation is that, you know, not the, the average person doesn't hunt squirrels with, with, with a hawk. So they won't notice when the squirrel disappears or the hawk disappears. It's just another, you know, you get these broad changes in landscape. There used to be a forest there, used to be a woodland there, and they disappear, and you notice that. But what people seldom appreciate is the things that lived in that little patch of, of forest. And and what we're finding now is that, sure, it would be great to have these rolling, you know, never-ending bits of habitat, but there is certainly merit in holding on to small enclaves of, of biodiversity within the landscape to try and preserve some of that. We may not get to hunt them as vulcaners, um, as has happened here in the Cape, where you've got um, areas that are protected and falconers can't hunt there any longer. But hopefully what will happen is they act as little seed areas, hopefully to, to, to provide game birds into the surrounding area and at least some area where, where, where nature is left intact. Yeah, no, I and that's that's why you know we have some of those conservation areas and stuff in the states too. And at least, yeah, I mean, at least there's going to be something somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> you know, well, I'm, I'm I'm personally super impressed with how the states does it. I mean, you know, you have a quota where, you know, it, you, it's your right to have a have a have a deer or two a year, and I, I find that very encouraging because because Africa's really not like that. I mean, the average citizen in, in Africa doesn't get the opportunity to go and shoot a deer for, for, the, for the freezer. It's just not available. And so you've got these disparities, and, and you know we're going into sustainable utilization, which is a whole different argument, um, which I, I would guess when we're talking to folkers, we, we, it's kind of we, we're preaching to the choir. But um, what we've got to try and do is, is figure out how we, how we appeal to that wider audience. And, and I always laugh because I find that Obviously, I, I, you know that I, I am president of BirdLife Zimbabwe as well, so I kind of sit on both sides of the fence in terms of conservation, protectionism, and uh, sustainable utilization. And, and, you know, we all kind of look at them and say, oh, well, they, they, they're mutually exclusive, but they're actually not. There's many different reasons why they do all work together. And um, But anyway, I laugh because many of the birders, you know, the twitchers, have an absolute blank when it comes to raptors. They yeah. have no clue. You it's, know, it's the same in the States It's too. so bizarre. <laughs> you know, they can tell one way from another, which that completely eludes me personally. But, you know, when you say, well, look, that hawk is so different to that one. And they say, how? You know, can you not see it? And it, it's it's kind of frustrating. But again, it plays back into what you're interested in. And and this is where also where I see falconers um, building into conservation, we have very specialist skills from our um, from from our, our what we observe every day, and 
you know, we can tell the difference between a, a Lana falcon and a peregrine just by seeing it fly, whereas the average birder might say, wow, you know, they look exactly the same. Are you sure? Mm-hmm. So I, I guess you have the same with prairies, you know. Prairie falcons and peregrines are so obviously different different to a falconer, but to an average birder, not so much, eh? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's it's the it's kind of the running... I don't know, sort of the running joke in the falconry community, like you'll be walking around with your red tail and somebody will come up to you, is that a bald eagle? You know, it's, <laughs> it's you know, it's it's the same, it's the same kind of thing, you know, it's it's the same kind of deal, I'm sure. I mean, I, I can't imagine it being different anywhere in the world, yeah. but. And that's the concern is that this, you know, we get so passionate about what we do. I mean, we know the difference between a male and a female, the way it flies, you know, between the male and female of of, of, this, of the same species. Yet, you know, Mr. Joe Public can't tell the difference between your national bird and a, and a red-tailed hawk. And we have the same, yeah. In fact, most people don't even care. And, and it, it's really concerning. And if we're not looking out for these things, then who is? It's certainly not going to be the birders. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, somebody's got to. And, yeah, so, I mean, it's, yeah, it'll, it'll continue to be a conundrum until I guess it's not, you know. But, um, you know, we we do our best. And, and as you said, you put it very well. I mean, all we can really do is just try our best to be, you know, good mentors to the next, yeah. to the next up-and-comers. And then, you know, hopefully more people will be inspired naturally to want to take up those those mantles and those roles and um and and trying to you know continue the not only the the falconry side but also the conservation side too and you know like i said hopefully it'll continue to get better instead of worse but <laughs> this is turning into a very very serious talk <laughs> <laughs> i know it's all good well we're going to switch focus though because i do want to ask you before we get too much further into anything else like i've already had a few conversations with some of the other um you know guests uh, earlier in the week and everything about you know how you guys do falconry here in 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 your um your schooling system or your grading system oh, and, yes. and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and you did touch on it very briefly at the beginning of this conversation, but go ahead and describe then since, you know, the Zimbabwe seemed to be, as you described or whatever, and I've heard it mentioned before from some of these, some of these other guys is, is kind of like the, I don't know where the, where the model came from, so to speak. So how did Zimbabwe get, their model, you know, and, uh, and, you know, just kind of talk about some of the history and, and how that got started, if you don't care. Well, the falconers were quite active. And so we had a, a had a, a wildlife authority, which, which was kind of advanced. It was very well populated with very qualified people. And some of those people were falconers. And when it came to deciding on how to allow falconry um we had these really three principally three really clever people who put who put this legislation together and it was it came as a, a not even as legislation it, it comes as as a as an understanding a, mem- a mem- memorandum of understanding with our with our, our parks and wildlife society uh, sorry authority and um basically it, it it really just describes anything that you might come across as a falconer. So initially it will be what what types of hawks can falconers use? And we came up with a short list of hawks. And then 
in that, you know, which ones are easy to hunt and which ones are not easy to hunt. It's always been about hunting birds, not about keeping birds. I understand that our legislation is strictly about hunting birds. Um, so which birds are good at hunting and which ones are easy to handle, which ones are common, which ones are not so common. And so they came about and there's a good, we're fortunate in that we've got a good number of species that we can hunt and fly. And um, amongst those is probably two really good uh, beginner's hawks, um, or which are actually very competent hunters. I understand beginner's hawks are not like kestrels, Euro kestrels, which, yes, they're pretty and they fly nicely to the glove, but these are proper killers. You know, they can actually catch quarry and, and, and quite big quarry. And so you start off with a, with a bird which is actually fully competent and fully functional and can catch things. And as a schoolboy, and this is where it starts off, uh, I'm starting to get, you know, let me try and get this in order. So those we call our C-grade hawks. So there's more common hawks, and then you've got slightly rarer hawks um, or more difficult hawks. So a black sparrow hawk, which I'm sure everyone will, would have heard of one way or another, it's, a, it's our, in fact, it's the biggest sparrow hawk in the world, but incredibly sparrow hawk. It is cooked in the head, and it is absolutely <laughs> a very difficult bird to train. And and basically, it was the black sparrow hawks. They were rare at a certain time because they were affected by DDT and dieldrin, uh, but they just can't be handled by novices. Novices will kill just killed far too many of them to to justify that. And then we had African hawk eagles, um, which are also B grade. So we've got C, B, and A grade. Um, only three B-grade hawks, and there's Lana Falcon, Black Sparrow Hawk, and the African Hawk Eagle. And then our A-grade hawk, hawk was limited peregrine, and that's just historically because they were that much rarer because of the, the impact of DDT. Within that, you were only allowed to take passage birds or IS peregrines and Black Sparrow Hawks. Lana Falcons, you can't take young ones, you can only take passage birds. And... The regulations are so stringent that it actually tells you what what, what constitutes a what, what constitutes a, a passage bird. So if you go along and trap your lana falcon, and it's got more than seventy percent adult plumage, it is an adult. So the you know that kind of that kind of detail in these regulations, which is kind of practical, you know, because you know we all say, well, passage bird. What is a passage bird? Well, it's a, it's kind of an intermediate between a juvenile and an adult, and somewhere in between is, it's no longer a, a juvenile; it's an adult. So very accurate stuff, and it came to all sorts of other other um, detail, which is I find interesting and, and quite had a lot of insight to to what we do as falconers. And what happens if your bird happens to kill a, the bycatchers of a protected species? And it does happen. We have corons and, you know, and you, your dog flushes a coron under a falcon and the falcon kills the coron. Now what do you do? You know, do you <laughs> ignore it? Do you bury it? But, they, you know, th this was recognized in the regulations that bycatch or bykill happens. Just report it, you know, so it's not gone to waste. So there's some clever little details. Um, that is slowly, it was obviously um, slowly, oh, we had even a written test. We have a, it's an open book, an open book test. Um, you've got to show prof proficiency with a C-grade hawk and it allows, and then you can, you do a written test and also a practical test. So basically the practical test is really just to see how, how a hawk responds. It's not designed to 
to re, re, to remove the chance of anybody flying a protected species is just to make sure that they are qualified and and have the ability to fly that without killing it. Or, yeah. In addition to that, we have a situation where we've got two schools, um, Falcon College and Peterhouse, where falconry was a club. So it, I suppose you could call it a selling point, but it was something that you could do as, as part of your activity. Activities was do falconry. Um, very limited places, though. I mean, when I was at Falcon, it was only eight, eight places available to do falconry. And and quite some at times very heavily contested. You know, when there were a lot of people interested in falconry, then eight wasn't enough. But for the most part, it was adequate. It was based on the carrying capacity around the school, what what you could hunt in walking distance with a hawk. And um, Ron Hartley, in this case, was our mentor, and he taught us how to how to fly birds. And um, yeah, I was very fortunate to get into that program. But one of his conditions was that when you did that you also had to do research on those birds so when we weren't hunting birds which obviously you don't hunt birds all year round we would be looking for birds nests and recording them hawks nests and reporting and then later as we sort of went through the system we would have to write that stuff down i mean my first article i ever wrote on i suppose you could in inverted commas call it a, a scientific article was for north for nafa journal at the age of 16, I wrote how my Afghos and what, how she flew and what she killed, which was at 16. <laughs> you know, most of us don't get it, don't start publishing even a scientist until we're in our 20s. So you can see there's, you know, there's quite a lot of merit in that. Yeah. There's also the ability now, I mean, we've got the, um, the IAF journal, which is a really good journal and, and, and I guess anyone can write to that journal. And it's it's kind of, it, it's a really nice journal because it can be quoted. It's not a scientific journal, but it, it, it's, it is reviewed. Not completely peer-reviewed, but it is reviewed. So, yeah, I, I believe that certainly under Faulkner conditions, you've got opportunities to, to, to get into science. And as far as, you know, once you, um, you know, are ready to advance, you know, the, your different grades and stuff in the, in this system. And, you know, like how many people then for Zimbabwe and, and you guys' system, like how many people have to collectively decide that someone is, is ready to move up to the next grade and is ready to fly, you know, different species of birds and things like that. Um, from to B grade, it would be two. It's just two people. So one person, so you write a written exam, which I said to you was open book and incidentally an interesting one in that it has a lot of map reading in it and it has a lot of um, on how to record a nest, for example, just simple skills. Um, so basically two, um, two people have to be satisfied that you, you, can, you can fly a bird adequately to take a protected species. Um, a grade is a little bit more difficult, so you'll have to show consistently over over a season that you can fly specifically a lana falcon. You're not allowed to take a peregrine. You're not allowed to fly a peregrine falcon until you've shown that you're proficient with a lana falcon. Bear in mind this really 
speaks back to when peregrine falcons were that rare that you couldn't get one. But now, you know, obviously they, they've recovered to a greater degree and it's almost, I, I, it's funny, I was talking to the South African falcons, the Cape falconers, over the last few days and they're like, well, peregrine falcons are B-grade. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> you know? But then they said, well, they're common and, and, and we need hawks that fly ducks. Now the falcons don't really find ducks, so it makes sense to have the more suited falcon to to what you're hunting accessible to the average falconer. Whereas in Zimbabwe it was slightly different in that peregrines outnumber, I mean, lana falcons outnumber peregrines 10 to 1. So a peregrine is still a very rare falcon compared to a lana falcon. Yeah, and as far as like the way the rest of the system is is set up, I mean, how many times has the system been modified or, or changed or anything since its like inception? I think it's constantly monitored. I don't. Unfortunately, I don't believe that everyone has has really followed each little change to the system. The most substantial one was um, the introductions uh, introduction of a CITES based permitting system. So we used to basically be on a permit that was given to you by National Parks, our, our, manage, our Wildlife Management Authority, and it was a permit which was just issued to you rather than you didn't pay for it. Um, it was recommended on our own recommendation as falconers, you would end up, you would get your permit. Um, but that now has subsequently been superseded by a CITES-based permit system. Um, the permit is however held in the name of the falconry club so it is a imminently a self-piecing system so the falconry club as a as a as a collective group applies for permits for that many different birds under these different names and should you fall foul of the falconers which is there's positives and negatives as you can well imagine in everything so if <laughs> yeah. you fall foul of the falconers then you might not be able to fly birds but on the other hand, it does give us a certain degree of accountability for, for what we do. You know, your peers basically look at you and say, you know, you are not up to scratch or you're not doing this. Um, we suggest that you either stop flying birds or go back to sea grade. For example, I, I would, at the moment, I wouldn't believe myself to be a, an A grader at all because I haven't flown a falcon for way too long. I would literally have to go back by my own admission, go back to flying a, a, a lana falcon before I even thought about flying a peregrine again, you know? So, and, and I think if you tried to, if I tried to fly a peregrine, people would say, you know, maybe you should go and fly a lana <laughs> for a little while until you, you're not so rusty. You know, there's ways of doing it where, it's, where we do it nicely without offending yeah. people. Yeah. But I like the idea of self-policing, but it does have its problems. You know, I think that some people have felt prejudiced by by the system. You know, they went in with the Vulcaners, which means it made it a lot harder for them to get their grading um, because it is quite a time-consuming thing to get a grading. First of all, you've got to get an examiner prepared to come to where you're flying your bird. You've got to hope like hell your bird flies well that day, and it's not just one day. Clearly, we don't examine somebody on the basis of performance of one day. It is a lot easier if that particular falconer who's examining you has seen you fly a bird many times or has watched you develop. So there has been quite, there has been a, a little bit of criticism about the way we do 
that particular aspect of self-policing, and and you can you can appreciate why. As we've mentioned hundreds of times, I mean, no system is perfect, and but you do your best to to adapt it to how things work, you know, for you and your and you know, like I said, it's and every country is going to have different needs based on different circumstances with well i mean with the obvious <laughs> factors that are involved you know but uh well i mean that's that's like i said that's fascinating and and you know i i just find all this stuff very interesting because you know i mean it, it's just really interesting to hear how things work from from country to country and you know i mean it it's it's kind of one of those things where you don't really appreciate what you have yourself sometimes until you hear what other people have and have had to go through to attain also what they have. So I know talking to you all along with, you know, what I've, you know, kind of discovered or, or learned talking to Falconers from some of these other countries too, you know, it does make me appreciate more, you know, like what, what we have and kind of how things are set up for us and stuff too. Like I said, no system is perfect, but yeah, I mean, I, some of these hoops that that you all have to jump through, it's it's nuts. It's a strange thing because I think I mentioned it, mentioned it this morning. Is that you know, it's the thirtieth meet of the of the Cape Falconers. I was at university when falconry was made legal in the Cape again, and it's 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 not so long ago. Mm-hmm. I don't feel it's long ago. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, they were so excited and they worked hard to get that. I mean, that was no easy. That was no mean feat to get falconry legalized in the Cape. I mean, the Transvaal Falconers were operating. The Cape Falconers really battled to get that. To see, you know, this is the 30th annual field meet. I mean, it, it's a big milestone. And it, it's kind of fun to, to realize that we've, I've watched that happen. And, and I was based in, I was, went to university in South Africa. So um, I actually was there when it happened, when they legalized it. And I remember my friends being so excited about the fact that they could now illegally fly, fly a bird in, in, in the Cape. Previously, they weren't legally flying a bird yeah. in the cat. Yeah. So that that is obviously being raised. The other thing is that you know if you don't let people have a chance, then they're going to do it anyway, which is a problem for everybody. You yeah. know. You know. I'd rather it, it it be out in the open, and we all know what the hell's potting before. Well, and then you have a say in what other people. You know what I mean? You you, you have a chance to kind of at least you know, have a, of a, a dog in the fight, you know, as, as, to, how, as, as, as to how things are done. hundred you know? percent. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's kind of fun to watch, you know, it's, it's fascinating. And, and you realize that, you know, 30, 30 years have elapsed and, and this is where we're at. And, and the Cape Falconers have got their own system of grading now. They grade according to need, which kind of makes sense. You know, why, why fly an African goshawk? In a landscape that doesn't have things to fly African goshawks at, rather get a, a lander falcon that will do the job, and the falconer benefits from it, the bird benefits from it, and and I, I like the way they've adapted the the regulations or, or or our fundamental basics that were were set up so long ago in Zimbabwe have now been adapted and to suit this particular environment. It's, it's kind of fun to watch. I bet it is. I bet it is, and. I think now, though, would be a good time to kind of transition a little bit to talking about some of your, your hunting experiences and some of your, your favorite memories. I know you said something last night when we were all hanging out and, uh, you know, drinking over at the reception hall and stuff. And you said a couple of things that were just, 
it, how can someone from the U.S., for example, like really fully appreciate what it's like to worry about like elephants when you're hunting? Yeah, exactly. you know, I mean, like I, I don't, I don't understand how. You know, I, I don't know. We there's, but at the same time, it's, it's fun to hear these things because we can't comprehend some of this stuff. I mean, some of the, the natural hazards that, that you all have. Yeah. Either you're not going to find an Indiana. Let's just put it that way. So look, I mean, I've never had a problem with an elephant, Um, (laughs) but, but conceivably it can happen. I mean, we've got, we've got falconers hunting in, in, in conservation areas. Uh, They're allowed to. And um, if you're focusing on your hawk, you could easily run into a lion. You've got to be have your wits about you. I mean, you could easily run into an elephant. So it is a real problem. And that's why I said to you, we probably wouldn't hunt in a conservancy because I would be worried about you getting squashed by something. I mean, I've personally had my, flown my hawk eagle, which I happen to be lamp, lamp flying with a lamp um, because our hairs are predominantly nocturnal. And um, um, and we were driving around looking for for hares, and they were some very bright eyes, and they turned out to be a leopard. So I've actually been in a vehicle hunting my about to hunt my hawk and seen a and had a leopard. So it can happen. And leopards <laughs> are, are pretty nasty creatures when they yeah they can be very very otherwise when they want to be yeah. Um, um, more commonly, we oh, we, oh God, I'll give you a whole lot of stories of, of, of the perils of falconry in Zimbabwe, but um, I've had a run-in with a snake. Actually, run, uh, snakes are quite a, quite a hazard for us. I mean, first of all, they throw a scent. I mean, people might not appreciate it, but snakes throw quite a good scent, a scent strong enough for a pointer to point on. So you think, oh, well, I've got this game bird in this piece of cover, and you go and kick it, and... It's not a game bird that comes out, but a, but a very angry cobra, <laughs> and and it does get awkward, especially yeah, if you're lucky. Yeah, so I had a I had had a had a snake strike, and it didn't. Fortunately, it didn't get me, but um, it did bounce off my leg, which um, yeah, it's quite a sobering thought. It does make you think twice before when you hear that scuffle and cover, whether you're going to jump or jump on it or not. Mm-hmm. And then um, I've had a sparrowhawk go and uh, land in the middle of a, of, a, <laughs> of a whole lot of wild pig. We have wild pig like you have balls and, 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 mm-hmm. and they're aggressive animals and you don't really want to disturb them when they're having a snooze in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> so we've had a situation where you've got hawk, pigs and falcon all going in different directions, which is fairly entertaining. Yeah, yeah, I mean, but the snake thing is an issue. I mean, I think Erin will probably speak to you about that because mm-hmm. she's also had a not a not – very, but it's something that we do have to be aware of. Um, yeah. In some areas, I mean, we've got particularly nasty snakes, things called puff adders, which don't really move out your way and don't really warn you and are lethal. So we, yeah, I mean, the closest thing we really have relating to that for the most part would be like rattlesnakes and stuff, which, yeah. you know, I this mean, is an it's a very common thing, you know, yeah. for depending on which part of the country you live in, as you know, but, uh, but yeah, it, uh, I don't know. I think if someone <laughs> if someone forced me to to choose between getting bitten by a rattlesnake or a puff adder, I think I'd probably know which one I'd take my chances yeah, with. Hundred yeah. <laughs> percent. But uh, yeah, but the, yeah. I'm sure that amongst uh, it would be great when you come to Zim and have a, have a chat because some of the the falconers, I mean, they've had some really entertaining 
We've had some very entertaining stories. Oh, I, I can't wait to, to eventually hear some of them for sure. But as far as a particular memory that you have, like a, a, with one of your hunts or, um, you know, with uh, a bird that you've flown in the past. So, I mean, what's one of the more memorable ones that will that continues to stick out in your mind? There's always at least one or, yeah. or two, but I guess I'm. I mean, I, I think I've told you I'm a sparrowhawk person. Mm -hmm. I love the small sparrowhawks. The small exhibitors really, really captivate me. And um, I had a, a red-breasted sparrowhawk, and there's one here. You've actually seen the red, the red, what they call a red spar here. It's a red-chested sparrowhawk. I had one as a, as a, well, I was at school still, so 17, 18 years old, flying one of those. And I can just remember a certain day, and there were a whole bunch of kids you know, watching me as a bird, and, and you understand that somebody walking around with a with a with a, ho a raptor on their fist in Africa is really really unusual. Yeah, you know, there's a whole lot of superstition associated with birds of prey, particularly with owls. Um, there's some very very deep beliefs about owls being messengers of witches. So when you you know when you're seen with a raptor on your arm, it it can be quite quite um, quite difficult for for normal kids to to appreciate that it's not a dangerous thing and and it's not you're not a witch and you're not going to do nasty things to them <laughs> but anyway I, and by chance a, a, you know a lark flushed at my feet and the sparrowhawk it was all, I mean I don't think I could have engineered it better if I tried I mean this lark went up and the sparrowhawk went underneath it and flew it right up into the sky and took and it accelerated and caught this this lock in front of in front of all these kids. And I can just remember that just absolute silence. And they watched this, and they did. It, it was the most phenomenal. You could see the kind of appreciation of what they'd just seen. They they thought I was a witch, and then all of a sudden I let this hawk go, and it caught this wild bird, and it landed, and I picked up the bird and held it and fed it, and they came and had a good look, and suddenly something which seemed so horribly alien to them was just normal. And I guess that, that will be a day which will always stand out to me. Cool. Well, and I guess before we we kind of move on to this the next part of this whole conversation, I do um, real quick want to get a, I don't know, kind of um, a piece of advice or a sentiment from you as far as what you would like to leave for current and prospective falconers You're asking for a lot of wisdom from a not so as person everybody's got at least a little bit of wisdom i guess it's the <laughs> same as as many many generations as leave it better than you got it you know yeah. make sure whatever you leave is better than whatever you took it on us and that goes for falconry have more hawks have more hunting better hunting better techniques i guess that would be my my message very good and i think that's the perfect segue then to i don't know maybe um transitioning a little bit to talking about your personal you know leave it better than than what, what you had it you know and the fact that you now have you know a daughter in, in, in falconry and um before we we hear some more from aaron what what's it been like for you personally you know kind of having um you know a daughter that's that's grown up and then decided to to take an interest in all these things that you've been involved with you know throughout your life is has it been kind of surreal for you or you know how has it been for you personally it's been very educational 
<laughs> First of all, you do need to understand mm. that yellow, red, and purple do not match. <laughs> and I'm talking about how a, how, a, how a woman or a girl sees how things need to be, how things need to match. Understand your glove, your leash, and your dresses much must match. They mustn't be different. <laughs> and and you know, for as a man, you just pick up the bit. You know that piece of string will do perfectly. Let's just use that one, and I don't care if it's yellow and the other one is green. This is but. The way that Erin does it, her, her, her attention to detail is a much greater than mine. And I'm being a little bit facetious talking about colors, but I do believe that women are much more, they have greater attention to detail. And, and I, I've actually benefited from this. Um, they're also, I guess, much more reserved in some respect. Um, they won't kill something unless it's necessary, which is, you know, as as a schoolboy, I remember if it flew, I would hunt it, and and to any end. And Erin's much more restrained than I was at her age, and and I found that quite quite interesting. I, look, I know we're going into the gender stuff, and it's a little bit of thin ice, and I don't like to go into thin ice. But it's just an observation. She's restrained me even at this age. You know, I'm 50-odd. And there was a barbet. And I recall the day very, very, very clearly when a barbet, which is a, it's a, I guess it's kind of like a woodpeckery kind of bird. And it was in a hole. And this Afgos, her African goshawk had chased it down. And she deserved the kill. And all I had to do, and I had my hand down the hole to fetch this poor bird inside this hole. And I was about to pull it out and chuck it out for this goshawk. And she turned to me and said, there's no need to kill it. And that was actually hugely mature because I was quite happy because I thought this goshawk needs to kill this thing. It's chased it hard. It deserves <laughs> the kill. Let me just chuck this hapless creature out and it can meet its fate. And, and, and yeah, Erin was much more restrained than I, than I have been. She's also much more restrained as we hunt birds. So I've learned a lot from her. Hopefully she's learned a little bit from me too. So. <laughs> well, I think that's a good note then to go ahead and, and uh, have her join in this conversation. And, um, you know, before before she um, jumps in here, though, I just want to say thank you to you for sharing everything that you've shared so far with us today. And, um, you know, for your time, it goes that goes without saying, I mean, I, I definitely value people's time and I appreciate you jumping in here and um you know sharing some and and thank you again for the invite I, I really hope to make good on it at some point and um you know take advantage of the kind offer to come and and see firsthand how you all do things over in your neck of the woods and and hear some more amazing stories from some more really really wonderful falconers so you're most welcome and obviously that's a, a very genuine offer that we make um yeah and i'm dying to see a red, uh, red-tailed hawk killer squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and subsequently, that goes without saying too that you're more than welcome, you know, to join anytime. You know, if you can find the time away and and um, you know everything, you're you're anytime we have a season going. I mean, it'll be you all's off season anyway, so you know um, you're more than welcome to to come over anytime as well. Super. So, thanks, thanks very much. All right, Aaron, it's your turn. Yeah, I know you're kind of. Uh, Seemed like you're a little uh, 
meekly intimidated a little bit ago and, and, uh, and, <laughs> and wanting to talk with us and stuff. But, uh, but I, I appreciate you, you know, being willing to kind of come and share what your experiences have been so far. And we really haven't had very many, I, I can't even remember at this point. I mean, we've done enough episodes now to where I, I can't instantly recollect, you know, who we, <laughs> you know, at times we've had on who we've had, but I, I can't remember I can't remember if we've even had like a father daughter tandem on yet. I don't think we have. So, um, from that perspective, this has been, this is kind of nice. So thank you again for, for, um, agreeing to talk, but you know, I, I just am really curious as far as your standpoint and, you know, you're so young and getting into all this and, you know, I mean, just in general, I guess, talk a little bit about what it's been for you personally, what your personal experience has been kind of going through and jumping through all these hoops and everything. And, and, uh, you know, what it's been like for you and in, in your country kind of getting into all this. Um, I think I've grown up with birds my whole life. So I've started to gain an interest for them and it's slowly started to grow over the years. And that encouraged me to get into falconry and, um, I do thoroughly enjoy it. And I go out every evening with my dad and we go hunting. And it's definitely a very good escape from the outside world. Um, just a way of finding a distraction, almost like how other people meditate. I find that for my falconry, it's definitely been a life changer. Um, it's very calming and I just really enjoy it as a sport. Yeah. And how do you manage to fit this around, you know, I mean, you're still in school. So, I mean, you, you basically then kind of like you briefly mentioned, kind of come home from school and then just go straight out to the field and get everything ready. And I mean, like how many times a week do you, do you usually fly your bird? So we do aim to fly my bird every day, but as I progress in school, it gets a lot busier and I do run out of time sometimes. So even though my bird is a very big priority um, in my daily life. I still also have to <laughs> include my schoolwork and my homework into it as well. Um, but I get home about 2 o'clock in the afternoon and I've got two hours to do what I need to do and then we go out about 4 and then we'll hunt till 6, um, which is plenty of time for a goshawk because um, she also gets tired after two hours of flying. I would, I would imagine. And so, I mean, what, about what time is six o'clock or, or so about what time it usually gets dark for you all? Yeah. So as soon as the sun starts setting, um, it's normally time to tie her up and take her home. Um, because she, she's not into flying at night. Yeah. She'd rather find a tree and have. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. I need this. The last thing you want as a, as a kid being in school also to have to figure out trying to, you know, uh, being able to come uh, <laughs> in the morning back to the spot where your bird is, you know, inconveniently perched up in a tree for the night and, and have to try and, and get your bird back and everything. I wouldn't imagine that would probably fit very well with, uh, you know, a school schedule. Unless you just lucked out and it happened on a Friday or something and, you know, you had the, <laughs> you were able to come back early the next morning and get it back. But, um, but I mean, as far as, I mean, you mentioned kind of like, you know, the escape from the world and things like that. I mean, I, it, as far as all of this goes, I mean, if this has been kind of your, 
escape from the normal stuff. I mean, how do, uh, I mean, out of curiosity, like how do other kids that, that you go to school with and everything kind of perceive all of this stuff? Or is it because it's a little bit more in your culture a little bit that, I mean, are kids generally more accepting of all this stuff? Do they find it, you know, cool? Or, I mean, how has it kind of been for you, you know, with, um, you know, still being in, in high school doing all this stuff? So people definitely find it very um, out of the ordinary, especially being a girl and flying hawks. It's not something that you come across every day, I suppose. Um, but I've got a group of friends who are very accepting and interested in what I do. And I've had a couple of them that come out hunting with me and just to see how things work. And I really appreciate it when they come out with me because it's just, it's, I find it's an experience for them as well as for me. And do you ever have to whip any of them into shape? I mean, do they do they goof off too much in the field and you have to kind of give them a, you know, a verbal lashing or anything, whip them back in line um, whenever they mess up a slip? Or um, or do they usually know the routine pretty well after, you know, you, you kind of give them the rundown? I sort of give them a subtle understanding before we go out. <laughs> um, but they adapt very quickly to it and... Um, I think they usually stay in the car and watch my dad do all the running. My dad and I do all the running through the <laughs> yeah. interesting. Yeah, I can imagine. Things. I can imagine. I mean, do you have um do you usually have more like guy friends or girl friends come out with you in the field or or rather come out and then just sit in the car and watch? <laughs> I actually have a mix of friends that um come out with me, girls and boys, but um I do find the girls tend to stay in the car a little bit more, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, I think it's nice for them to also experience what it's like to go out hunting and what my daily life is like. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure it's kind of, at least, even if they don't fully appreciate it, it's nice to see other kids kind of getting out and, you know, kind of, um, appreciating the, the nature and aspect of it all and stuff too. But do you ever get to go hawking with anybody else, but your, but your dad? I mean, do you guys have mutual falconer friends that sometimes you go out or is it pretty much always your, your dad that you go out with? So we've got, well, my dad's got a few friends, um, who are into falconry. Um, the one man gave me my goshawk. So he's, also incorporated a lot into my falconry so he'll come out hunting with us sometimes he's got a lana and a black sparrow hawk so we often go out hunting with him and it's a nice change to watch someone else doing falconry um and to see how long wings fly because it's not something that i normally see every day because i just fly a short wing. yeah and as far as kind of your experience being indoctrinated and in, in to all this and kind of educated on how to um you know hunt and and do everything else have you uh <laughs> have you been on the receiving end of any of those little lashings whenever you've uh you know not done something right or accidentally kicked something up or do you uh <laughs> do you do you are you kind of um you know a part of the group enough now to where you kind of just are able to to give the heckling back and all that kind of stuff or i think um with all us falconers we know um, sort of how hunting works. So where we are in Zimbabwe, obviously the cover is very difficult to gauge where anything is. Um, it's a lucky guess if you manage to flush something. But usually how we hunt together is we let um, the main 
the falconer who's flying go ahead and they'll instruct us what they would like to do because everyone hunts very differently and it's just something you have to adapt to if you go with other people. Yeah, I mean, I I can't even tell you how many times you know I've heard now it's it's my hunt, you know, whatever, <laughs> and and in you know, and also conversely to that, you know, how it's just like whenever someone acts like you know they're really not really sure what they're doing. I mean, we're just like it's, it's your hunt, it's your yeah. dream. Let's you know you you're the one that's supposed to be making these decisions, you know. But uh, but I mean, so you know, for the most part, your experience growing up and all this, um, you know, I mean, has been. I, well, it's been positive enough for you to want to do it. So, I mean, I guess your your dear old dad sitting over there couldn't have been too hard on you growing up, you know. Yeah, with the, <laughs> with I was the, lucky with that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know, like, you know, my son, he's only ever been out with me maybe like three times, and he could care less about most of it. So, like I said, I always like talking to other people who, you know, have, um, I don't know, kind of taken to it and, you know, <laughs> it just it, for whatever reason it it's it's stuck with them so but um so i mean as far as your you know particular uh individual hunting experiences and i mean you've been this is what your third year is that correct yes this is my third year mm -hmm. but you've been pretty avid the whole three years with it there's not really much gaps or anything as far as yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah just pretty pretty consistent yeah yeah and it's just the the African goshawk that you've been flying. You haven't um, graduated to any different bird yet or anything. So I've just been flying an African goshawk at the moment. I haven't flown anything else yet. Um, I think probably going into the next season, I might change birds um, and set my African goshawk goshawk on her way. I've helped to rehabilitate a few birds. Um, I did a few white face owls. And um, recently I did a lizard buzzard as well. That it, I think it got caught in a fence. Um, so it wasn't, <laughs> it took a little while to get it back to consciousness. And it tamed down very well and very quickly. Within two days it was sitting on the glove and eating like a hawk that had been flying for years. Um, but I set it on its way and it went very well. It's still flapping around my garden. Well, and whenever you... Um... I don't know, like, were you pretty much just doing general basic things with it or were you trying to um, kind of go a little extra step before re-releasing it? Were you trying to do anything that was like mock hunting or similar to it or was it just the basic, you know, handling and things like that? I started handling the lizard buzzard because I found it was getting really stressed out when I was trying to feed it when it was in a box or on the ground and... I figured maybe it would be easier just to have it on a glove and feed it like a normal hawk so that it wasn't so stressed out with the experience. Yeah. Yeah. But you didn't try and, and like, you know, hunt it or anything no. like that or just, you know. I didn't want it to man down too much. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're, yeah, you're just going to release it. And, yeah. yeah. Well, I understand. But, um, okay, well, and as far as, you know, I mean, in the short time that you've been doing this then, I mean, it sounds like you, you hunt a lot, which is great. And I mean, as far as the different hunts and experiences that you've had with your, with your Sparrowhawks so far, what has been, you know, one of your more memorable, you know, hunting, hunting experiences? <laughs> so I could list a couple, but I remember one very well. Um, I got home from school quite late. And my dad likes to go out hunting one time. So um, it was a big rush to get out the door and um, go hunting. So we found a go-away bird in one of the cattle pens. 
and they're very difficult to hunt with the goshawk because they're fast and they're much smarter. So um, we chased it from tree to tree and it was a good <laughs> 20 minutes worth of running. Um, and we got back to the car and she missed, <laughs> she didn't manage to get the go away bird. And the sun just started setting and we decided, okay, let's go on a little bit more. So we walked around the corner and there was a group of Franklin, but they were all very big birds. And she went for the biggest bird <laughs> and it was a male Swainson's Franklin. And it was about 690 grams. So it was double her size. She was 330 grams at the time. So <laughs> she got it straight and she was very confident when she went at it. Awesome. And you were able to get over there quick and yeah. help her out. And yeah, it's it's always uh, really cool when when those instances work out. You know, not so much when they don't, but <laughs> but that's neat. I mean, like I said, it's it's been great kind of getting somewhat familiar with all of with all of your prey species here and everything. It's been really eye opening to see the the differences in what you all do here as opposed to and have available and I mean what's uh do you do you have any other stories that you'd like to share that are kind of memorable too? I mean, is there any other um kind of an anomaly or anything that's that's happened whenever you've hunted or um I mean we've run into a few interesting things like my dad mentioned earlier, like snakes and mm-hmm. um I had an experience with a leg of one once. <laughs> she flew at a mouse bird right next to the dam and it was during the rainy season so the grass was long and it was very swampy and I heard something really big next to me jump into the water and there's crocodiles in the dam too and you don't want to be coming too close to those. So I was quite relieved when I saw it was just a leg of one. Yeah. And, um, I mean, as far as the, the snakes in particular, I mean, have there been any moments where you've had any really close calls, you know, I mean, was there any, any time where you thought you're going to have to, you know, change, change, <laughs> change pants or drawers when you got home or. <laughs> so we were hunting in a sand fault during the dry season. So the grass was very thick and it was long. Um, often the grass is burnt during the dry seasons, but this was just before. So. Uh, we were walking through the long grass. I I think it was about six feet high. It was tall and I couldn't see anything around me. But my bird had flown into a cactus. <laughs> she was sitting on a cactus, so I had to go get her. And we just flashed some Franklin nearby. So I was hoping I would be able to flash them in front of the cactus. Um, and I heard something moving. So I went running towards it, expecting it to be a nice Franklin. And I saw a tail <laughs> slithering away. So um, I took it as a sign that it was time to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Well, your dad was probably right then in that you probably have elements of uh, maturity that uh, that some of us probably don't even at an early age. <laughs> because <laughs> because I, I can tell you there's been instances where I know that in in hindsight, I definitely probably should have just quit my day, <laughs> but for whatever reason, we're just so dumb sometimes. And if it doesn't end the way we want it, sometimes we continue to, to push even when we shouldn't. And 
oftentimes with not really great results. <laughs> but, uh, well, I mean, thank you for, you know, sharing a few of these, you know, experiences and, you know, kind of what it's been like in a nutshell for you, um, you know, in your short time so far. But, I mean, yeah, there's really something that everybody can learn from everybody. So I would like to also ask you, I mean, from someone your from your um from someone from your perspective i mean i mean so far in your short falconry career thus far i mean what do you think would be a, a good piece of advice that you can kind of pass on to people that that might want to get into it or or just now getting into falconry well i think um as a girl doing falconry i get a lot of strange looks from people um <laughs> wondering why I decided I should do falconry instead of something more normal. Um, but I think definitely if these other girls that wanted to do falconry, you have to overcome the looks that <laughs> you're going to get from people <laughs> and to just enjoy time with your bird. And it's always a good learning experience. Yeah. And yeah, peer pressure it can kind of suck, you know, growing up for sure. But um yeah, no, I know. I think that, um, like I said, it's, it's a good piece of advice. And uh, ultimately, it would be great if people wouldn't care so much about what other people do. You know, but, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, I mean, is there anything else that, that you can think of that might be, you know, noteworthy to, to share in your experience thus far? I mean, it sounds like, I mean you you even 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 as a young teenage girl in in a completely different country and everything it sounds like you uh hunt about as much as what you know yeah. <laughs> some of a lot of my you know my fellow falconers do so i mean is there anything else you'd like to share before we we end this episode or i think there's a lot of dedication when you're flying a bird um it's you can't really just back out of it when you already when you've already started it so um it is quite time consuming um but you have to find a balance between your normal life and then your falconry as well yeah well and like i said i, I appreciate you being willing to kind of jump on here even though i know initially <laughs> you probably weren't very excited to but um but this has been a like i said it's been a great experience it's been getting to know um you know, you and your dad and everybody else has been here this week. And, um, yeah, I think I'll just go ahead and, and call this good then. And, you know, I hope that things continue to go well for you in your falconry career. And, you know, I mean, even if, um, you decide that you try other birds and, you know, whatever, as long as you continue to find that, that one species that you're really happy with, then I'm happy for you. So, but, uh, yeah, thank you. And, uh, hopefully we get to see some more cool stuff later. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Aaron. And um, like I said, hopefully, um, you know, you and your dad will be able to host me sometime in a, in a hunt. <laughs> Definitely. And uh, yeah. So anyway, thank you again. And we'll, we'll talk again soon.